Harper Audio presents The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf Dobelli Translated by Nikki Griffin Read by Eric Conger In the fall of 2004, a European media mogul invited me to Munich to partake in what was described as an informal exchange of intellectuals. I had never considered myself an intellectual. I had studied business, which made me quite the opposite, really. But I had also written two literary novels, and that, I guessed, must have qualified me for such an invitation. Nassim Nicolas Taleb was sitting at the table. At that time, he was an obscure Wall Street trader with a penchant for philosophy. I was introduced to him as an authority on the English and Scottish Enlightenment, particularly the philosophy of David Hume. Obviously, I had been mixed up with someone else. Stunned, I nevertheless flashed a hesitant smile around the room and let the resulting silence act as proof of my philosophical prowess. Right away, Taleb pulled over a free chair and patted the seat. I sat down. After a cursory exchange about Hume, the conversation mercifully shifted to Wall Street. We marveled at the systematic errors in decision-making CEOs and business leaders make, ourselves included. We chatted about the fact that unexpected events seem much more likely in retrospect. We chuckled about why it is that investors cannot part with their shares when they drop below acquisition price. Following the event, Taleb sent me pages from his manuscript, a gem of a book, which I commented on and partly criticized. These went on to form part of his international bestseller, The Black Swan. The book catapulted Taleb into the intellectual all-star league. Meanwhile, my appetite whetted, I began to devour books and articles written by cognitive and social scientists on topics such as heuristics and biases, and I also increased my email conversations with a large number of researchers and started to visit their labs. By 2009, I realized that, alongside my job as a novelist, I had become a student of social and cognitive psychology. The failure to think clearly, or what experts call a cognitive error, is a systematic deviation from logic, from optimal, rational, reasonable thought and behavior. By systematic, I mean that these are not just occasional errors in judgment, but rather routine mistakes, barriers to logic we stumble over time again and again, repeating patterns through generations and through the centuries. For example, it's much more common that we overestimate our knowledge than we underestimate it. Similarly, the danger of losing something stimulates us much more than the prospect of making a similar gain. In the presence of other people, we tend to adjust our behavior to theirs, not the opposite. Anecdotes make us overlook the statistical distribution base rate behind it, not the other way around. The errors we make follow the same pattern over and over again, piling up in one specific, predictable corner like dirty laundry, while the other corner remains relatively clean. That is, they pile up in the overconfidence corner, not the underconfidence corner. To avoid frivolous gambles with the wealth I had accumulated over the course of my literary career, I began to put together a list of these systematic cognitive errors, complete with notes and personal anecdotes, 
with no intention of ever publishing them. The list was originally designed to be used by me alone. Some of these thinking errors have been known for centuries. Others have been discovered in the last few years. Some come with two or three names attached to them. I chose the terms most widely used. Soon I realized that such a compilation of pitfalls was not only useful for making investing decisions, but also for business and personal matters. Once I had prepared the list, I felt calmer and more level-headed. I began to recognize my own errors sooner and was able to change course before any lasting damage was done. And for the first time in my life, I was able to recognize when others might be in the thrall of these very same systematic errors. Armed with my list, I could now resist their pull and perhaps even gain an upper hand in my dealings. I now had categories, terms, and explanations with which to ward off the specter of irrationality. Since Benjamin Franklin's kite-flying days, thunder and lightning have not grown less frequent, powerful, or loud, but they have become less worrisome. This is exactly how I feel about my own irrationality now. Friends soon learned of my compendium and showed interest. This led to a weekly newspaper column in Germany, Holland, and Switzerland, countless presentations, mostly to medical doctors, investors, board members, CEOs, and government officials, and eventually to this book. Please keep in mind three things as you peruse these pages. First, the list of fallacies in this book is not complete. Undoubtedly, new ones will be discovered. Second, the majority of these errors are related to one another. This should come as no surprise. After all, brain regions are linked. Neural projections travel from region to region in the brain. No area functions independently. Third, I am primarily a novelist and an entrepreneur, not a social scientist. I don't have my own lab where I can conduct experiments on cognitive errors, nor do I have a staff of researchers I can dispatch to scout for behavioral errors. In writing this book, I think of myself as a translator whose job is to interpret and synthesize what I've read and learned, to put it in terms others can understand. My great respect goes to the researchers who, in recent decades, have uncovered these behavioral and cognitive errors. The success of this book is fundamentally a tribute to their research. I am enormously indebted to them. This is not a how-to book. You won't find seven steps to an error-free life here. Cognitive errors are far too ingrained to rid ourselves of them completely. Silencing them would require superhuman willpower. But that isn't even a worthy goal. Not all cognitive errors are toxic, and some are even necessary for leading a good life. Although this book may not hold the key to happiness, at the very least it acts as insurance against too much self-induced unhappiness. Indeed, my wish is quite simple. If we could learn to recognize and evade the biggest errors in thinking, in our private lives, at work, or in government, we might experience a leap in prosperity. We need no extra cunning, no new ideas, no unnecessary gadgets, no frantic hyperactivity. All we need is less irrationality. 1. Why you should visit cemeteries. Survivorship bias. No matter where Rick looks, he sees rock stars. They appear on television on the front pages of magazines, in concert programs, 
and at online fan sites. Their songs are unavoidable, in the mall, on his playlist, in the gym. The rock stars are everywhere. There are lots of them. And they are successful. Motivated by the stories of countless guitar heroes, Rick starts a band. Will he make it big? The probability lies a fraction above zero. Like so many others, he will most likely end up in the graveyard of failed musicians. This burial ground houses 10,000 times more musicians than the stage does. But no journalist is interested in failures, with the exception of fallen superstars. This makes the cemetery invisible to outsiders. In daily life, because triumph is made more visible than failure, you systematically overestimate your chances of succeeding. As an outsider, you, like Rick, succumb to an illusion, and you mistake how minuscule the probability of success really is. Rick, like so many others, is a victim of survivorship bias. Behind every popular author, you can find a hundred other writers whose books will never sell. Behind them are another hundred who haven't found publishers. Behind them are yet another hundred whose unfinished manuscripts gather dust in drawers. And behind each of these are a hundred people who dream of, one day, writing a book. You, however, hear of only the successful authors. These days, many of them self-published and fail to recognize how unlikely literary success is. The same goes for photographers, entrepreneurs, artists, athletes, architects, Nobel Prize winners, television presenters, and beauty queens. The media is not interested in digging around in the graveyards of the unsuccessful, nor is this its job. To elude the survivorship bias, you must do the digging yourself. You will also come across survivorship bias when dealing with money and risk. Imagine that a friend founds a startup. You belong to the circle of potential investors, and you sense a real opportunity. This could be the next Google. Maybe you'll be lucky. But what is the reality? The most likely scenario is that the company will not even make it off the starting line. The second most likely outcome is that it will go bankrupt within three years. Of the companies that survive these first three years, most never grow to more than ten employees. So, should you never put your hard-earned money at risk? Not necessarily. But you should recognize that the survivorship bias is at work, distorting the probability of success like cut glass. Take the Dow Jones Industrial Average Index. It consists of out-and-out -out survivors. Failed and small businesses do not enter the stock market and yet these represent the majority of business ventures. A stock index is not indicative of a country's economy. Similarly, the press does not report proportionately on all musicians. The vast number of books and coaches dealing with success should also make you skeptical. The unsuccessful don't write books or give lectures on their failures. Survivorship bias can become especially pernicious when you become a member of the winning team. Even if your success stems from pure coincidence, you'll discover similarities with other winners and be tempted to mark these as success factors. However, if you ever visit the graveyard of failed individuals and companies, you'll realize that its tenants possessed many of the same traits that characterize your success. If enough scientists examine a particular phenomenon, 
A few of these studies will deliver statistically significant results through pure coincidence. For example, the relationship between red wine consumption and high life expectancy. Such false studies immediately attain a high degree of popularity and attention. As a result, you won't read about the studies with the boring but correct results. Survivorship bias means this people systematically overestimate their chances of success. Guard against it by frequently visiting the graves of once promising projects, investments, and careers. It's a sad walk, but one that should clear your mind. 2. Does Harvard make you smarter? Swimmer's Body Illusion. As essayist and trader Nassim Taleb resolved to do something about the stubborn extra pounds he'd been carrying, he contemplated taking up various sports. However, joggers seemed scrawny and unhappy, and bodybuilders looked broad and stupid, and tennis players, oh, so upper middle class. Swimmers, though, appealed to him with their well built, streamlined bodies. He decided to sign up at his local swimming pool and to train hard twice a week. A short while later, he realized that he had succumbed to an illusion. Professional swimmers don't have perfect bodies because they train extensively. Rather, they're good swimmers because of their physiques. How their bodies are designed is a factor for selection and not the result of their activities. Similarly, female models advertise cosmetics, and thus many female consumers believe that these products make you beautiful. But it is not the cosmetics that make these women model like. Quite simply, the models are born attractive, and only for this reason are they candidates for cosmetics advertising. As with the swimmers' bodies, beauty is a factor for selection and not the result. Whenever we confuse selection factors with results, we fall prey to what Taleb calls the swimmers' body illusion. Without this illusion, half of advertising campaigns would not work. But this bias has to do with more than just the pursuit of chiseled cheekbones and chests. For example, Harvard has the reputation of being a top university. Many highly successful people have studied there. Does this mean that Harvard is a good school? We don't know. Perhaps the school is terrible, and it simply recruits the brightest students around. I experienced this phenomenon at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. It's said to be one of the top ten business schools in Europe, but the lessons I received, albeit 25 years ago, were mediocre. Nevertheless, many of its graduates were successful. The reason behind this is unknown. Perhaps it was due to the climate in the narrow valley, or even the cafeteria food. Most probable, however, is the rigorous selection. All over the world, MBA schools lure candidates with statistics regarding future income. This simple calculation is supposed to show that the horrendously high tuition fees pay for themselves over a short period of time. Many prospective students fall for this approach. I'm not implying that the schools doctor the statistics, but still their statements must not be swallowed wholesale. Why? Because those who pursue an MBA are different from those who do not. The income gap between both groups stems from a multitude of reasons that have nothing to do with the MBA degree itself. Once again, we see the swimmer's body illusion at work, the factor for selection confused with the result. So if you're considering further study, do it for reasons other than a bigger paycheck.
When I ask people about the secret of their contentment, I often hear answers like, you have to see the glass half full rather than half empty. It's as if these individuals do not realize that they were born happy and now tend to see the positive in everything. They don't realize that cheerfulness, according to many studies, such as those conducted by Harvard's Dan Gilbert, is largely a personality trait that remains constant throughout life. Or, as social scientists David Lykin and Aoki Telegan starkly suggest, trying to be happier is as futile as trying to be taller. Thus, the swimmer's body illusion is also a self-illusion. When these optimists write self-help books, the illusion can become treacherous. That's why it's important to give wide berth to tips and advice from self-help authors. For billions of people, these pieces of advice are unlikely to help. But because the unhappy don't write self-help books about their failures, this fact remains hidden. In conclusion, be wary when you're encouraged to strive for certain things, be it abs of steel, immaculate looks, a higher income, a long life, a particular demeanor, or happiness. You might fall prey to the swimmer's body illusion. Before you decide to take the plunge, look in the mirror and be honest about what you see. 3. Why you see shapes in the clouds Clustering Illusion In 1957, Swedish opera singer Friedrich Jorgensen bought a tape player to record his vocals. When he listened back to the recording, he heard strange noises throughout, whispers that sounded like supernatural messages. A few years later, he recorded birdsong. This time, he heard the voice of his deceased mother in the background whispering to him, Freed, my little Freed, can you hear me? It's Mammy. That did it. Jorgensen turned his life around and devoted himself to communicating with the deceased via tape recordings. In 1994, Diana Duzer from Florida also had an otherworldly encounter. After biting into a slice of toast and placing it back down on the plate, she noticed the face of the Virgin Mary in it. Immediately, she stopped eating and stored the divine message, minus a bite, in a plastic container. In November 2004, she auctioned the still fairly well-preserved snack on eBay. Her daily bread earned her $28,000. In 1978, a woman from New Mexico had a similar experience. Her tortilla's blackened spots resembled Jesus' face. The press latched onto the story, and thousands of people flocked to New Mexico to see the Savior in burrito form. Two years earlier, in 1976, the orbiter of the Viking spacecraft photographed a rock formation that, from high above, looked like a human face. The face on Mars made headlines around the world. And you? Have you ever seen faces in the clouds or the outlines of animals in rocks? Of course. This is perfectly normal. The human brain seeks patterns and rules. In fact, it takes it one step further. If it finds no familiar patterns, it simply invents some. The more diffuse the signal, such as the background noise on the tape, the easier it is to find hidden messages in it. Twenty-five years after uncovering the face on Mars, the Mars Global Surveyor sent back crisp, clear images of the rock formations. The captivating human face had dissolved into plain old scree. These frothy examples make the clustering illusion seem innocuous. 
It's not. Consider the financial markets, which churn out floods of data every second. Grinning from ear to ear, a friend told me that he had discovered a pattern in the sea of data. If you multiply the percentage change of the Dow Jones by the percentage change of the oil price, you get the move of the gold price in two days' time. In other words, if share prices and oil climb or fall in unison, gold will rise the day after tomorrow. His theory worked well for a few weeks until he began to speculate with ever larger sums and eventually squandered his savings. He had sensed a pattern where none existed. O, XXX, O, XXX, O, XX, O, 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 X, O, O, X, X, O, O. Is this sequence random or planned? Psychology professor Thomas Gilovich interviewed hundreds of people for an answer. Most did not want to believe the sequence was arbitrary. They figured some law must govern the order of the letters. Wrong, explained Gilovich, and pointed to some dice. It's quite possible to roll the same number four times in a row, which mystifies many people. Apparently, we have trouble accepting that such events can take place by chance. During World War II, the Germans bombed London. Among other ammunition, they used V-1 rockets, a kind of self-navigating drone. With each attack, the impact sites were carefully plotted on a map, terrifying Londoners. They thought they had discovered a pattern and developed theories about which parts of the city were the safest. However, after the war, statistical analysis confirmed that the distribution was totally random. Today it's clear why. The V-1's navigation system was extremely inaccurate. In conclusion, when it comes to pattern recognition, we're oversensitive. Regain your skepticism. If you think you have discovered a pattern, first consider it pure chance. If it seems too good to be true, find a mathematician and have the data tested statistically. And if the crispy parts of your pancakes start to look a lot like Jesus' face, ask yourself, if he really wants to reveal himself, why doesn't he do it in Times Square or on CNN? 4. If 50 million people say something foolish, it's still foolish. Social proof. You're on your way to a concert. At an intersection, you encounter a group of people all staring at the sky. Without even thinking about it, you peer upward too. Why? Social proof. In the middle of the concert, when the soloist is displaying absolute mastery, someone begins to clap, and suddenly the whole room joins in. You do too. Why? Social proof. After the concert, you go to the coat check to pick up your coat. You watch how the people in front of you place a coin on a plate, even though officially the service is included in the ticket price. What do you do? You probably leave a tip as well. Social proof, sometimes roughly termed the herd instinct, dictates that individuals feel they're behaving correctly when they act the same as other people. In other words, the more people who follow a certain idea, the better or truer we deem the idea to be. And the more people who display a certain behavior, the more appropriate this behavior is judged by others. This is, of course, absurd. Social proof is the evil behind bubbles and stock market panic. It exists in fashion, management techniques, hobbies, religion, and diets. 
It can paralyze whole cultures, such as when sects commit collective suicide. A simple experiment, carried out in the 1950s by legendary psychologist Solomon Ash, shows how peer pressure can warp common sense. A subject is shown a line drawn on paper, and next to it three lines, numbered one, two, and three, one shorter, one longer, and one the same length as the original one. He or she must indicate which of the three lines corresponds to the original one. If the person is alone in the room, he gives correct answers because the task is really quite simple. Now, five other people enter the room. They're all actors, which the subject doesn't know. One after another, they give wrong answers, saying number one, though it's very clear that number three is the correct answer. Then it's the subject's turn again. In one-third of cases, he will answer incorrectly to match the other people's responses. Why do we act like this? Well, in the past, following others was a good survival strategy. Suppose that 50,000 years ago you were traveling around the Serengeti with your hunter-gatherer friends, and suddenly they all bolted. What would you have done? Would you have stayed put, scratching your head, and weighing up whether what you were looking at was a lion or something that just looked like a lion but was in fact a harmless animal that could serve as a great protein source? No. You would have sprinted after your friends. Later on, when you were safe, you could have reflected on what had actually happened. Those who acted differently, and I'm sure there were some, exited the gene pool. We are the direct heirs of those who copied the other's behavior. This pattern is so deeply rooted in us that we still use it today, even when it offers no survival advantage. Only a few cases come to mind where social proof is of value. For example, if you find yourself hungry in a foreign city and don't know a good restaurant, it makes sense to pick the one that's full of locals. In other words, you copy the locals' behavior. Comedy and talk shows make use of social proof by inserting canned laughter at strategic spots, inciting the audience to laugh along. One of the most impressive, though troubling, cases of this phenomenon is the famous speech by Nazi propaganda minister Josef Goebbels, delivered to a large audience in 1943. See it for yourself on YouTube. As the war went from bad to worse for Germany, he demanded to know, Do you want total war? If necessary, do you want a war more total and radical than anything that we can even imagine today? The crowd roared. If the attendees had been asked individually and anonymously, it's likely that nobody would have consented to this crazy proposal. The advertising industry benefits greatly from our weakness for social proof. This works well when a situation is unclear, such as deciding among various car makes, cleaning products, beauty products, and so on, with no obvious advantages or disadvantages, and where people like you and me appear. So be skeptical whenever a company claims its product is better because it's the most popular. How is a product better simply because it sells the most units? And remember English novelist W. Somerset Maugham's wise words. If 50 million people say something foolish, it's still foolish. 5. Why you should forget the past. Sunk cost fallacy. The film was dire. After an hour, I whispered to my wife, Come on, let's go home. She replied, No way. We're not throwing away $30. That's no reason to stay, I protested. The money's already gone. 
This is the sunk cost fallacy at work, a thinking error. She glared at me as if she had just bitten off a piece of lemon. Okay, I sometimes go overboard on the subject. Itself an error called déformation professionnelle. See chapter 92. I desperately tried to clarify the situation. We have spent $30 regardless of whether we stay or leave, so this factor should not play a role in our decision. Needless to say, I gave in and sunk back down in my seat. The next day, I sat in a marketing meeting. Our advertising campaign had been running for four months and had not met even one of its goals. I was in favor of scrapping it. The advertising manager resisted, saying, But we've invested so much money in it. If we stop now, it'll all have been for nothing. Another victim of the sunk cost fallacy. A friend struggled for years in a troubled relationship. His girlfriend cheated on him time and again. Each time, she came back repentant and begged for forgiveness. He explained it to me this way. I've invested so much energy in the relationship, it would be wrong to throw it away. A classic case of the sunk cost fallacy. The sunk cost fallacy is most dangerous when we've invested a lot of time, money, energy, or love in something. This investment becomes a reason to carry on, even if we're dealing with a lost cause. The more we invest, the greater the sunk costs are, and the greater the urge to continue becomes. Investors frequently fall victim to the sunk cost fallacy. Often they base their trading decisions on acquisition prices. I lost so much money with this stock, I can't sell it now, they say. This is irrational. The acquisition price should play no role. What counts is the stock's future performance, and the future performance of alternative investments. Ironically, the more money a share loses, the more investors tend to stick by it. This irrational behavior is driven by a need for consistency. After all, consistency signifies credibility we find contradictions abominable. If we decide to cancel a project halfway through, we create a contradiction. We admit that we once thought differently. Carrying on with a meaningless project delays this painful realization and keeps up appearances. The Concorde is a prime example of a government deficit project. Even though both parties, Britain and France, had long realized that the supersonic aircraft business would never work, they continued to invest enormous sums of money in it, if only to save face. Abandoning the project would have been tantamount to admitting defeat. The sunk cost fallacy is therefore often referred to as the Concorde effect. It leads to costly, even disastrous, errors of judgment. The Americans extended their involvement in the Vietnam War because of this. Their thinking? We've already sacrificed so much for this war. It'd be a mistake to give up now. We've come this far. I've read so much of this book already. But I've spent two years doing this course. If you recognize any of these thought patterns, it shows that the sunk cost fallacy is at work in a corner of your brain. Of course, there may be good reasons to continue investing in something to finalize it, but beware of doing so for the wrong reasons, such as to justify non-recoverable investments. Rational decision-making requires you to forget about the costs incurred to date. No matter how much you have already invested, only your assessment of the future costs and benefits counts. 6. Don't accept free drinks. Reciprocity.
Not so long ago, you may have come across disciples of the Hare Krishna sect floating around in saffron-colored robes as you hurried to catch a flight or a train to your destination. A member of the sect presented you with a small flower and a smile. If you're like most people, you took the flower simply to avoid seeming rude. If you tried to refuse, you would have heard a gentle, Take it. This is our gift to you. If you wanted to dispose of the flower in the next trash can, you found that there were already a few there. But that was not the end. Just as your bad conscience started to tug at you, another disciple of Krishna approached you again, this time asking for a donation. In many cases, this plea was successful. So pervasive that many airports banned the sect from the premises. Psychologist Robert Cialdini can explain the success of this and other such campaigns. He has studied the phenomenon of reciprocity and has established that people have extreme difficulty being in another person's debt. Many NGOs and philanthropic organizations use exactly the same techniques. First give, then take. Last week, a conservation organization sent me an envelope full of postcards featuring all sorts of idyllic landscapes. The accompanying letter assured me that the postcards were a gift to be kept whether or not I decided to donate to their organization. Even though I understood the tactic, it took a little willpower and ruthlessness to throw them in the trash. Unfortunately, this kind of gentle blackmail, you could also call it corruption, is widespread. A supplier of screws invites a potential customer to join him at a big sports game. A month later, it's time to order screws. The desire not to be in debt is so strong that the buyer gives in, and places an order with his new friend. It's also an ancient technique. We find reciprocity in all species whose food supplies are subject to high fluctuations. Suppose you're a hunter-gatherer. One day you're lucky and kill a deer. You can't possibly eat all of it in a day, and refrigerators are still a few centuries away. You decide to share the deer with the group, which ensures that you'll benefit from other spoils when your haul is less impressive. The bellies of your buddies serve as your refrigerator. Reciprocity is a very useful survival strategy, a form of risk management. Without it, humanity and countless species of animals would be long extinct. It's at the core of cooperation between people who are not related and a necessary ingredient for economic growth and wealth creation. There would be no global economy without it. There would be no economy at all. That's the good side of reciprocity. But there's also an ugly side of reciprocity, retaliation. Revenge breeds counter-revenge, and you soon find yourself in a full-scale war. Jesus preached that we should break this cycle by turning the other cheek, which proves very difficult to do. So compelling is the pull of reciprocity, even when the stakes are far less high. Several years ago, a couple invited my wife and me to dinner. We had known this couple casually for quite some time. They were nice, but far from entertaining. We couldn't think of a good excuse to refuse, so we accepted. Things played out exactly as we had imagined. The dinner party was beyond tedious. Nevertheless, we felt obliged to invite them to our home a few months later. The constraint of reciprocity had now presented us with two wearisome evenings. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, a follow-up invitation from them arrived. I wonder how many dinner parties have been endured in the name of reciprocity, even if the participants would have preferred to drop out of the vicious cycle years ago. In much the same way, 
If someone approaches you in the supermarket, whether to offer you a taste of wine, a chunk of cheese, or a handful of olives, my best advice is to refuse their offer, unless you want to end up with a refrigerator full of stuff you don't even like. 7. Beware the Special Case Confirmation Bias, Part 1 Gill wants to lose weight. He selects a particular diet and checks his progress on the scale every morning. If he has lost weight, he pats himself on the back and considers the diet a success. If he has gained weight, he writes it off as a normal fluctuation and forgets about it. For months, he lives under the illusion that the diet is working, even though his weight remains constant. Gill is a victim of the confirmation bias, albeit a harmless form of it. The confirmation bias is the mother of all misconceptions. It's the tendency to interpret new information so that it becomes compatible with our existing theories, beliefs, and convictions. In other words, we filter out any new information that contradicts our existing views, disconfirming evidence. This is a dangerous practice. Facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored, said writer Aldous Huxley. However, we do exactly that, as super-investor Warren Buffett knows. What the human being is best at doing is interpreting all new information so that their prior conclusions remain intact. The confirmation bias is alive and well in the business world. One example. An executive team decides on a new strategy. The team enthusiastically celebrates any sign that the strategy is a success. Everywhere the executives look, they see plenty of confirming evidence, while indications to the contrary remain unseen or are quickly dismissed as exceptions or special cases. They have become blind to disconfirming evidence. What can you do? If the word exception crops up, prick up your ears. Often it hides the presence of disconfirming evidence. It pays to listen to Charles Darwin. Since his youth, he set out to fight the confirmation bias systematically. Whenever observations contradicted his theory, he took them very seriously and noted them down immediately. He knew that the brain actively forgets disconfirming evidence after a short time. The more correct he judged his theory to be, the more actively he looked for contradictions. The following experiment shows how much effort it takes to question your own theory. A professor presented his students with the number sequence 246. They had to calculate the underlying rule that the professor had written on the back of a sheet of paper. The students had to provide the next number in the sequence to which the professor would reply, fits the rule or does not fit the rule. The students could guess as many numbers as they wanted, but could try only once to identify the rule. Most students suggested 8 as the next number, and the professor replied, fits the rule. To be sure, they tried 10, 12, and 14. The professor replied each time, fits the rule. Then the students concluded, the rule is to add 2 to the last number. The professor shook his head. That is not the rule. One shrewd student tried a different approach. He tested out the number minus 2. The professor said, does not fit the rule. Seven, he asked. Fits the rule. The student tried all sorts of numbers. Minus 24, 9, minus 43. Apparently, he had an idea, and he was trying to find a flaw with it. Only when he could no longer find a counterexample, the student said, The rule is this. 
the next number must be higher than the previous one. The professor turned over the sheet of paper, revealing those very words. What distinguished the resourceful student from the others? While the majority of students sought merely to confirm their theories, he tried to find fault with his, consciously looking for disconfirming evidence. You might think, good for him, but not the end of the world for the others. However, falling for the confirmation bias is not a petty intellectual offense. How it affects our lives will be revealed in the next chapter. 8. Murder Your Darlings Confirmation Bias, Part 2 In the previous chapter, we met the father of all fallacies, the confirmation bias. Here are a few examples of it. We're forced to establish beliefs about the world, our lives, the economy, investments, our careers, and more. We deal mostly in assumptions, and the more nebulous these are, the stronger the confirmation bias. Whether you go through life believing that people are inherently good or people are inherently bad, you'll find daily proof to support your cause. Both parties, the philanthropists and the misanthropists, simply filter disconfirming evidence, evidence to the contrary, and focus on the do-gooders and dictators who support their worldviews. Astrologers and economists operate on the same principle. They utter prophecies so vague that any event can substantiate them. In the coming weeks, you will experience sadness. Or, in the medium term, the pressure on the dollar will increase. But what is the medium term? What will cause the dollar to depreciate? And depreciation measured against what? Gold? Yen? Pesos? Wheat? Residential property in Manhattan? The average price of a hot dog? Religious and philosophical beliefs represent an excellent breeding ground for the confirmation bias. Here, in soft, spongy terrain, it grows wild and free. For example, worshippers always find evidence for God's existence, even though He never shows Himself overtly, except to illiterates in the desert and in isolated mountain villages. It's never to the masses, in, say, Frankfurt or New York, Counter-arguments are dismissed by the faithful, demonstrating just how powerful the confirmation bias is. No professionals suffer more from the confirmation bias than business journalists. Often they formulate an easy theory, pat it out with two or three pieces of evidence, and call it a day. For example, Google is so successful because the company nurtures a culture of creativity. Once this idea is on paper, the journalist corroborates it by mentioning a few other prosperous companies that foster ingenuity. Rarely does the writer seek out disconfirming evidence, which in this instance would be struggling businesses that live and breathe creativity, or conversely, flourishing firms that are utterly uncreative. Both groups have plenty of members, but the journalist simply ignores them. If he or she were to mention just one, the storyline would be ruined. Self-help and get-rich-quick books are further examples of blinkered storytelling. Their shrewd authors collect piles of proof to pump up the most banal of theories, such as meditation is the key to happiness. Any reader seeking disconfirming evidence does so in vain. Nowhere in these books do we see people who lead fulfilled lives without meditation, or those who, despite meditation, are still sad. The Internet is particularly fertile ground for the confirmation bias. To stay informed, we browse news sites and blogs, forgetting that our favored pages mirror our existing values, 
be they liberal, conservative, or somewhere in between. Moreover, a lot of sites now tailor content to personal interests and browsing history, causing new and divergent opinions to vanish from the radar altogether. We inevitably land in communities of like-minded people, further reinforcing our convictions and the confirmation bias. Literary critic Arthur Quiller Couch had a memorable motto, Murder Your Darlings. This was his advice to writers who struggled with cutting cherished but redundant sentences. Quiller Couch's appeal is not just for hesitant hacks, but for all of us who suffer from the deafening silence of assent. To fight against the confirmation bias, try writing down your beliefs, whether in terms of worldview, investments, marriage, healthcare, diet, career strategies, and set out to find disconfirming evidence. Axing beliefs that feel like old friends is hard work, but imperative. 9. Don't bow to authority. Authority bias. The first book of the Bible explains what happens when we disobey a great authority. We get ejected from paradise. This is also what less celestial authorities would have us believe. Political pundits, scientists, doctors, CEOs, economists, government heads, sports commentators, consultants, and stock market gurus. Authorities pose two main problems to clear thinking. First, their track records are often sobering. There are about one million trained economists on the planet, and not one of them could accurately predict the timing of the 2008 financial crisis, with the exception of Nouriel Roubini and Nassim Taleb, let alone how the collapse would play out, from the real estate bubble bursting to credit default swaps collapsing, right through to the full-blown economic crunch. Never has a group of experts failed so spectacularly. The story from the medical world is much the same. Up until 1900, it was discernibly wiser for patients to avoid doctor's visits. Too often the treatment only worsened the illness, due to poor hygiene and folk practices such as bloodletting. Psychologist Stanley Milgram demonstrated the authority bias most clearly in an experiment in 1961. His subjects were instructed to administer ever-increasing electrical shocks to a person sitting on the other side of a pane of glass. They were told to start with 15 volts, then 30 volts, 45 volts, and so on, until they reached the maximum, a lethal dose of 450 volts. In reality, no electrical current was actually flowing. Milgram used an actor to play the role of the victim. But those charged with administering the shocks didn't know that. The results were, well, shocking. As the person in the other room wailed and writhed in pain, and the subject administering the shock wanted to stop, the professor would say, keep going, the experiment depends on it. The majority of people continued with the electrocution. More than half of the participants went all the way up to the maximum voltage, out of sheer obedience to authority. Over the past decade, airlines have also learned the dangers of the authority bias. In the old days, the captain was king. His commands were not to be doubted. If a co-pilot suspected an oversight, he wouldn't have dared to address it out of respect for, or fear of, his captain. Since this behavior was discovered, nearly every airline has instituted Crew Resource Management, CRM, which coaches pilots and their crews to discuss any reservations they have openly and quickly, 
In other words, they carefully deprogram the authority bias. CRM has contributed more to flight safety in the past 20 years than have any technical advances. Many companies are light years from this sort of foresight. Especially at risk are firms with domineering CEOs, where employees are likely to keep their lesser opinions to themselves, much to the detriment of the business. Authorities crave recognition and constantly find ways to reinforce their status. Doctors and researchers sport white coats. Bank directors don suits and ties. Kings wear crowns. Members of the military wield rank badges. Today, even more symbols and props are used to signal expertise. Appearances on talk shows and on the covers of magazines, to book tours and Wikipedia entries. Authority changes, much like fashion does, and society follows it just as much. In conclusion, when you're about to make a decision, think about which authority figures might be exerting an influence on your reasoning. And when you encounter one in the flesh, do your best to challenge him or her. 10. Leave your supermodel friends at home. Contrast Effect In his book Influence, Robert Cialdini tells the story of two brothers, Sid and Harry, who ran a clothing store in 1930s America. Sid was in charge of sales, and Harry led the tailoring department. Whenever Sid noticed that the customers who stood before the mirror really liked their suits, he became a little hard of hearing. He called to his brother, Harry, how much for this suit? Harry looked up from his cutting table and shouted back, For that beautiful cotton suit, $42. At that time, it was a completely inflated price. Sid pretended as if he hadn't understood. How much? Harry yelled again, $42. Sid then turned to his customer and reported, He says $22. At this point, the customer would have quickly put the money on the table and hastened from the store with the suit before poor Sid noticed his mistake. Maybe you know the following experiment from your school days. Take two buckets, fill the first with lukewarm water and the second with ice water. Dip your right hand into the ice water for one minute. Then put both hands into the lukewarm water. What do you notice? The lukewarm water feels as it should to the left hand and piping hot to the right hand. Both of these stories epitomize the contrast effect. We judge something to be beautiful, expensive, or large if we have something ugly, cheap, or small in front of us. We have difficulty with absolute judgments. The contrast effect is a common misconception. You order leather seats for your new car because compared to the $60,000 price tag on the car, $3,000 seems a pittance. All industries that offer upgrade options exploit this illusion. The contrast effect is at work in other places, too. Experiments show that people are willing to walk an extra 10 minutes to save $10 on food. But those same people wouldn't dream of walking 10 minutes to save $10 on a $1,000 suit. An irrational move because 10 minutes is 10 minutes and $10 is $10. Logically, you should walk back in both cases or not at all. Without the contrast effect, the discount business would be completely untenable. A product that's been reduced from $100 to $70 seems a better value than a product that's always cost $70. The starting price should play no role. The other day an investor told me, The share is a great value because it's 50% below the peak price. I shook my head. 
A share price is never low or high. It is what it is. And the only thing that matters is whether it goes up or down from that point. When we encounter contrasts, we react like birds to a gunshot. We jump up and get moving. Our weak spot, we don't notice small, gradual changes. A magician can make your watch vanish because when he presses on one part of your body, you don't notice the lighter touch on your wrist as he relieves you of your Rolex. Similarly, we fail to notice how our money disappears. It constantly loses its value, but we don't notice because inflation happens over time. If it were imposed on us in the form of a brutal tax, and basically that's what it is, we would be outraged. The contrast effect can ruin your whole life. A charming woman marries a fairly average man, but because her parents were awful people, the ordinary man appears to be a prince. One final thought. Bombarded by advertisements featuring supermodels, we now perceive beautiful people only as moderately attractive. If you're seeking a partner, never go out in the company of your supermodel friends. People will find you less attractive than you really are. Go alone, or better yet, take two ugly friends. 11. Why we prefer a wrong map to none at all. Availability bias. Smoking can't be that bad for you. My grandfather smoked three packs of cigarettes a day and lived to be more than a hundred. Or, Manhattan is really safe. I know someone who lives in the middle of the village and he never locks his door, not even when he goes on vacation, and his apartment has never been broken into. We use statements like these to try to prove something, but they actually prove nothing at all. When we speak like this, we succumb to the availability bias. Are there more English words that start with a K, or more words with K as its third letter? Answer, more than twice as many English words have K in the third position than start with a K. Why do most people believe the opposite is true? Because we can think of words beginning with a K more quickly. They're more available to our memory. The availability bias says this. We create a picture of the world using the examples that most easily come to mind. This is idiotic, of course, because in reality things don't happen more frequently just because we can conceive of them more easily. Thanks to the availability bias, we travel through life with an incorrect risk map in our heads. Thus, we systematically overestimate the risk of being the victims of a plane crash, a car accident, or a murder. And we underestimate the risk of dying from less spectacular means, such as diabetes or stomach cancer. The chances of bomb attacks are much rarer than we think, and the chances of suffering depression are much higher. We attach too much likelihood to spectacular, flashy, or loud outcomes. Anything silent or invisible we downgrade in our minds. Our brains imagine show-stopping outcomes more readily than mundane ones. We think dramatically, not quantitatively. Doctors often fall victim to the availability bias. They have their favorite treatments, which they use for all possible cases. More appropriate treatments may exist, but these are in the recesses of the doctor's minds. Consequently, they practice what they know. Consultants are no better. If they come across an entirely new case, they don't throw up their hands and sigh, I really don't know what to tell you. Instead, they turn to one of their more familiar methods, whether or not it's ideal. If something is repeated often enough, it gets stored at the forefront of our minds. It doesn't even have to be true. 
How often did the Nazi leaders have to repeat the term, the Jewish question, before the masses began to believe that it was a serious problem? You simply have to utter the words UFO, life energy, or karma enough times before people start to credit them. The availability bias has an established seat at the corporate board's table, too. Board members discuss what management has submitted, usually quarterly figures, instead of more important things, such as a clever move by the competition, a slump in employee motivation, or an unexpected change in customer behavior. They tend not to discuss what's not on the agenda. In addition, people prefer information that's easy to obtain, be it economic data or recipes. They make decisions based on this information rather than on more relevant but harder-to-obtain information, often with disastrous results. For example, we've known for 10 years that the so-called black Scholes formula for the pricing of derivative financial products does not work. But we don't have another solution, so we carry on with an incorrect tool. It's as if you were in a foreign city without a map and then pulled out one for your hometown and simply used that. We prefer wrong information to no information. Thus, the availability bias has presented the banks with billions in losses. What was it that Frank Sinatra sang? Something about loving the girl I'm near when I'm not near the girl I love? A perfect example of the availability bias. Fend it off by spending time with people who think differently than you do. People whose experiences and expertise are different from yours. We require others' input to overcome the availability bias. 12. Why no pain, no gain should set alarm bells ringing. The it'll get worse before it gets better fallacy. A few years ago, I was on vacation in Corsica and fell sick. The symptoms were new to me and the pain was growing by the day. Eventually, I decided to seek help at a local clinic. A young doctor began to inspect me, prodding my stomach, gripping my shoulders and knees, and then poking each vertebra. I began to suspect that he had no idea what my problem was, but I wasn't really sure, so I simply endured the strange examination. To signal its end, he pulled out his notebook and said, Antibiotics. Take one tablet three times a day. It'll get worse before it gets better. Glad that I now had a treatment, I dragged myself back to my hotel room, with the prescription in my hand. The pain grew worse and worse, just as the doctor had predicted. The doctor must have known what was wrong with me after all. But when the pain hadn't subsided after three days, I called him. Increase the dose to five times a day. It's going to hurt for a while more, he said. After two more days of agony, I finally called the International Air Ambulance. The Swiss doctor diagnosed appendicitis and operated on me immediately. Why did you wait so long? He asked me after the surgery. I replied, It all happened exactly as the doctor said, so I trusted him. Ah, you fell victim to the it'll get worse before it gets better fallacy. That Corsican doctor had no idea, probably just the same type of stand-in you find in all the tourist places in high season. Let's take another example. A CEO is at his wit's end. Sales are in the toilet, the salespeople are unmotivated, and the marketing campaign sank without a trace. In his desperation, he hires a consultant. For $5,000 a day, this man analyzes the company and comes back with his findings. Your sales department has no vision. 
and your brand isn't positioned clearly. It's a tricky situation. I can fix it for you, but not overnight. The measures will require sensitivity, and most likely sales will fall further before things improve. The CEO hires the consultant. A year later, sales fall, and the same thing happens the next year. Again and again, the consultant stresses that the company's progress corresponds closely to his prediction. As sales continue their slump in the third year, the CEO fires the consultant. A mere smokescreen, the "it'll get worse before it gets better" fallacy, is a variant of the so-called confirmation bias. If the problem continues to worsen, the prediction is confirmed. If the situation improves unexpectedly, the customer is happy, and the expert can attribute it to his prowess. Either way, he wins. Suppose you're the president of a country and have no idea how to run it. What do you do? You predict difficult years ahead, ask your citizens to tighten their belts, and then promise to improve the situation only after this delicate stage of cleansing, purification, and restructuring. Naturally, you leave the duration and severity of the period open. The best evidence of this strategy's success is the religious zealot who believes that before we can experience heaven on earth, the world must be destroyed. Disasters, floods, fires, death—they're all part of the larger plan and must take place. These believers will view any deterioration of the situation as confirmation of the prophecy, and any improvement as a gift from God. In conclusion, if someone says it'll get worse before it gets better, you should hear alarm bells ringing. But beware: situations do exist where things first dip, then improve. For example, a career change requires time and often incorporates loss of pay. The reorganization of a business also takes time. But in all these cases, we can see relatively quickly if the measures are working. The milestones are clear and verifiable. Look to these. Rather than to the heavens. Thirteen, even true stories are fairy tales. Story bias. Life is a muddle, as intricate as a Gordian knot. Imagine an invisible Martian decides to follow you around with an equally invisible notebook, recording what you do, think, and dream. The rundown of your life would consist of entries such as drank coffee, two sugars. Stepped on a thumbtack and swore like a sailor, dreamed that I kissed the neighbor, booked vacation Maldives now nearly out of money, found hair sticking out of ear, plucked it right away, and so on. We like to knit this jumble of details into a neat story. We want our lives to form a pattern that can be easily followed. Many call this guiding principle meaning. If our story advances evenly over the years, we refer to it as identity. We try on stories as we try on clothes," says Max Frisch, a famous Swiss novelist. We do the same with world history, shaping the details into a consistent story. Suddenly, we understand certain things. For example, why the Treaty of Versailles led to the Second World War, or why Alan Greenspan's loose monetary policy created the collapse of Lehman Brothers. We comprehend why the Iron Curtain had to fall, or why Harry Potter became a bestseller. Here we speak about understanding, but these things cannot be understood in the traditional sense. We simply build the meaning into them afterward. Stories are dubious entities; they simplify and distort reality and filter things that don't fit. But apparently, we can't do without them. 
Why remains unclear. What is clear is that people first used stories to explain the world before they began to think scientifically, making mythology older than philosophy. This has led to the story bias. In the media, story bias rages like a wildfire. For example, a car is driving over a bridge when the structure suddenly collapses. What do we read the next day? We hear the tale of the unlucky driver, where he came from, and where he was going. We read his biography, born somewhere, grew up somewhere else, earned a living as something. If he survives and can give interviews, we hear exactly how it felt when the bridge came crashing down. The absurd thing, not one of these stories explains the underlying cause of the accident. Skip past the driver's account and consider the bridge's construction. Where was the weak point? Was it fatigue? If not, was the bridge damaged? If so, by what? Was a proper design even used? Where are there other bridges of the same design? The problem with all these questions is that, though valid, they just don't make for a good yarn. Stories attract us. Abstract details repel us. Consequently, entertaining side issues and backstories are prioritized over relevant facts. On the upside, if it were not for this, we'd be stuck with only non-fiction books. Here are two stories from the English novelist E.M. Forster. Which one would you remember better? A. The king died and the queen died. B. The king died and the queen died of grief. Most people will retain the second story more easily. Here, the two deaths don't just take place successively, they're emotionally linked. Story A is a factual report, but story B has meaning. According to information theory, we should be able to hold on to A better, it's shorter. But our brains don't work that way. Advertisers have learned to capitalize on this too. Instead of focusing on an item's benefits, they create a story around it. Objectively speaking, narratives are irrelevant but we still find them irresistible. Google illustrated this masterfully in its Super Bowl commercial from 2010, Google Parisian Love. Take a look at it on YouTube. From our own life stories to global events, we shape everything into meaningful stories. Doing so distorts reality and affects the quality of our decisions. But there is a remedy. Pick these apart. Ask yourself, what are they trying to hide? Visit the library and spend half a day reading old newspapers. You'll see that events that today look connected weren't so at the time. To experience the effect once more, try to view your life story out of context. Dig into your old journals and notes, and you'll see that your life has not followed a straight line leading to today, but has been a series of unplanned, unconnected events and experiences, as we'll see in the next chapter. Whenever you hear a story, ask yourself, Who is the sender? What are his intentions? And what did he hide under the rug? The omitted elements might not be of relevance, but then again, they might be even more relevant than the elements featured in the story, such as when explaining a financial crisis or the cause of war. The real issue with stories? They give us a false sense of understanding, which inevitably leads us to take bigger risks and urges us to take a stroll on thin ice. 14. Why You Should Keep a Diary Hindsight Bias I came across the diaries of my great-uncle recently. In 1932, he emigrated from a tiny Swiss village to Paris to seek his fortune in the movie industry. 
In August 1940, two months after Paris was occupied, he noted, Everyone is certain that the Germans will leave by the end of the year. Their officers also confirmed this to me. England will fall as fast as France did, and then we'll finally have our Parisian lives back, albeit as part of Germany. The occupation lasted four years. In today's history books, the German occupation of France seems to form part of a clear military strategy. In retrospect, the actual course of the war appears the most likely of all scenarios. Why? Because we have fallen victim to the hindsight bias. Let's take a more recent example. In 2007, economic experts painted a rosy picture for the coming years. However, just 12 months later, the financial markets imploded. Asked about the crisis, the same experts enumerated its causes. Monetary expansion under Greenspan. Lacks validation of mortgages, corrupt rating agencies, low capital requirements, and so forth. In hindsight, the reasons for the crash seem painfully obvious. The hindsight bias is one of the most prevailing fallacies of all. We can aptly describe it as the I told you so phenomenon. In retrospect, everything seems clear and inevitable. If a CEO becomes successful due to fortunate circumstances, he will, looking back, rate the probability of his success a lot higher than it actually was. Similarly, following Ronald Reagan's massive election victory over Jimmy Carter in 1980, commentators announced his appointment to be foreseeable, even though the election lay on a knife edge until a few days before the final vote. Today, business journalists opine that Google's dominance was predestined, even though each of them would have snorted had such a prediction been made in 1998. One particularly blundering example, nowadays it seems tragic, yet completely plausible, that a single shot in Sarajevo in 1914 would totally upturn the world for 30 years and cost 50 million lives. Every child learns this historical detail in school. But back then, nobody would have dreamed of such an escalation. It would have sounded too absurd. So why is the hindsight bias so perilous? Well, it makes us believe we're better predictors than we actually are, causing us to be arrogant about our knowledge and consequently to take too much risk, and not just with global issues. Have you heard? Sylvia and Chris aren't together anymore. It was always going to go wrong. They were just so different. Or, they were just so similar. Or, they spent too much time together. Or even, they barely saw one another. Overcoming the hindsight bias isn't easy. Studies have shown that people who are aware of it fall for it just as much as everyone else. So I'm very sorry, but you've just wasted your time reading this chapter. If you're still with me, I have one final tip, this time from personal rather than professional experience. Keep a journal. Write down your predictions for political changes, your career, your weight, the stock market, and so on. Then, from time to time, compare your notes with actual developments. You'll be amazed at what a poor forecaster you are. Don't forget to read history, too. Not the retrospective, compacted theories compiled in textbooks, but the diaries, oral histories, and historical documents from the period. If you can't live without news, read newspapers from 5, 10, or 20 years ago. This will give you a much better sense of just how unpredictable the world is. Hindsight may provide temporary comfort to those overwhelmed by complexity, but as for providing deeper revelations about how the world works, you'll benefit by looking elsewhere.